Hello, everybody. My name is Luke Marshall, and you are listening to the Things Observed podcast. And today we are going to be starting a series on Otto Skorzeny, Hitler's top commando, the guy who saved Mussolini and who would later go on to not only be a Nazi, but to work for, guess what, Western intelligence agencies, a Nazi who would even go on to do work for the Mossad and Hey, at some point in the series, we're going to even get into whether or not he was involved in the assassination of JFK. There's going to be a lot of very, very interesting things that we are going to get into with Scorzini. But first, we have to start with his early life. Who is Otto Scorzini? How did he become Hitler's top commando? Or at least that's something that he liked to call himself in his own memoirs, which we will see as many people's memoirs are, especially that of Psychopaths, are a little bit, what could you say? He gives himself a bit of a nice treatment in his own memoirs, but we're going to be pulling from that. We're going to be pulling from Coup in Dallas by H.P. Alborelli Jr., and we're going to be talking about stuff that I found in the Scorzini papers by Ralph Gannis. We're going to be talking about all kinds of things that I found in various sources. You can find all the sources for today's episode in the description below. But anyways, let's just go ahead and get into Otto Scorzini. So on June 12th of 1908, a boy was born in Vienna, and this boy would be Scorzini. He was the son of a successful civil engineer, and Otto would do well in school, and maybe he got this from his father, but he would have a propensity for mathematics and chemistry. He would do well in those subjects, but with English and French, he would struggle a little bit, although later on in life, he would learn French so well that he came across to some to be a native speaker. He was fluent in French, and as we will see, one of the intelligence agencies that he would get involved with was in, you know, French intelligence, and he would get into some kind of Operation Gladio type stuff over in France. But anyways, we will come to that later on. But the early years of Scorzini's life would have an indelible mark left on them by World War One and all the hardship that the First World War brought. And he would receive another indelible mark on him but this one is much more outwardly apparent you can just get on google images and you can see this mark for yourself and he would get this while attending technical school in vienna where he would become a part of the german national student association that was uh, characterized by a belief in a mixture of classical liberal and nationalist ideas and this second mark would be from his days of dueling which he would do at this technical school and this scar would extend from near his left ear down towards the corner of his lip and down the side of his chin i don't know what the deal is with all these nazis but so many of them have just such a a large facial scar that makes them look every bit as evil as they were. Um, I don't know if this is true. I think I saw it on a YouTube short from the Joe Rogan experience, but I heard that they would stuff like horse fur or something in scars that they got in their on in their face, so that way the it would leave a more pronounced scar. I don't know if that's if that's true, but 
Anyhow, that's something I've heard, but I do know that a lot of these Nazis do have big scars on the face, so not sure what the deal is with that. I'll have to take a look into it. But anyways, this scar would be acquired in his 10th of 15 personal combats that he would do during his dueling days, and he would gain, as a result of this scar, the apt nickname Scarface. So, yep, we're talking about a Nazi Scarface commando Western intelligence asset today. And as a consequence of the deep scar that marred his cheek, he would, uh, you know, just have this nickname Scarface. So, this to Otto was not viewed as a disfigurement, but rather a symbol impressed on his face that through his life would remind him of his philosophy of war. A lesson learned from the edge of the saber was this scar. And so Scorzini would speak to this philosophy when he said, My knowledge of pain, learned with the saber, taught me not to be afraid, and just as in dueling, when you must concentrate on your enemy's cheek, so too in war. You cannot waste time on fainting and sidestepping. You must decide on your target and go in. So this is a little bit of the philosophy that he would have of the world and of war, and much of this would be acquired from his dueling days. Um, man, maybe we should bring dueling back, specifically like gun duels or something. I don't know, that might be some sort of weird libertarian fantasy or something. I don't really think that we should bring it out, but bring it back out, but... Anyhow, it is kind of a, a fun notion that any time, you know, that somebody steps on your shoe or they forget to take the onion off of your burger or whatever the small slight might be, that you can challenge them to a duel. Back in the days when men were men, you know, anyhow... I don't know why I'm going on about dueling, but another lesson that Scorzini would learn from his time with this dueling fraternity would be described by Scorzini, and he would say, The original purpose of our dueling was to learn self-control. We were instructed to fight offensively and avoid being pushed into the defensive. Such training had a deeper meaning. A person who acts and thinks passively will seldom achieve success. Conversely, being active in all areas of life will bear positive results. The active person will achieve success more readily and have the greater influence than the passive one. I am grateful for this training, for I have often had to use it. So, there's a little bit about the philosophy that Scorzini would have of life that he would acquire from his dueling days. Scorzini would not just be a participant in the violence that comes along with dueling, but he would get into a much worse scene, to say the least. And this worldview that he acquired from his dueling days would help to determine the trajectory of the rest of his life, and he would soon come in hand and this worldview would soon come in handy when he joined the SS and early in his career in nineteen thirty eight to be exact he would find himself in the position of Hauptscharfuhrer or Master Sergeant, which usually involved headquarter duties. But he had, just not too long before then, he had initially joined the Austrian Nazi organization in 1932. And in just two years later, in early 1934, he would join the, I'm going to probably pronounce some of these German words wrong, the Sturm of 
the Sturma Battalion, or in English, the Storm Detachment, um, the paramilitary arm of the Nazi party in other wards. And Scorzini would also begin participating in Nazi-sponsored motor racing, which was uh, the Motor Corps also served as a front for security and police activities and was related to police mobilization and the security of the Nazi party. So it kind of served a dual function. And ever the extracurricular man, Scorzini would also become involved with the German Gymnastics Association, which also served as a front for Nazi security activity. And man... I don't know how much gymnastics he really did, but every time I see gymnastics, those dudes are absolutely jacked. I think as a young man, I maybe would have thought of gymnastics as a bit of a girly pursuit, but any gymnast could probably about tie me in a knot and snap my neck. Those male gymnasts are absolutely jacked. I should have gotten into gymnastics. But anyways, um, who's to say how much gymnastics was uh, even being done in the German Gymnastics Association? Because we know that it served as many of these kind of extracurricular things for the Nazis did as a recruiting grounds for, you know, finding SS guys and what have you. And so Skrzyny's old dueling buddy from the college days, Ernst Kaltenbrunner, head of the Austrian SS, would take a notice to his old buddy who had a reputation for the ability to remain cool under pressure. And so I guess Carlton Brunner um, thought that this was something that would be of utility to him. And so when Carlton Brunner became head of the Reich Main Security Office, which was the, uh, the center of Nazi state security efforts, Skorzeny would help further... Um, not Scorzini, Carlton Brunner would help further Scorzini's military career. And so, in the words of Scorzini, the vacation was over when the Nazis invaded Poland on September 1st of 1939. And so, this would send Europe into a state of war. And this is also when Scorzini, in order to fill his military obligations, would enlist in the Luftwaffe. But... Um, I mean, he thought that he would be, you know, cut out for the Luftwaffe because he was a private pilot and he had a background in engineering. So he thought himself to be cut out for this work, but he would be refused entry due to the fact that he was a bit of a tall guy at six foot four. And he was also a little bit older than what they were searching for in the Luftwaffe, which is he was 31 years old at the time. However, he would find his place when he became an engineer officer cadet of the Waffen SS in 1940. And so then he would go on to be assigned to the elite Limestardent division of the Waffen SS. And then he would find himself in the 2nd SS Das Reich Division after a transfer. So he's climbing up the ranks. He is making a Nazi name for himself. And he would begin to see action in the invasion of Holland and in Yugoslavia. And then would be promoted from sergeant to 2nd lieutenant. And at one point he would... Um, I don't know, this might just be from his own account, but he would supposedly capture 57 enemy soldiers without firing a shot, and this would result in him receiving a bravery award. And, 
man, it is so cold where I'm at. I'm looking outside and it is so deceiving. You could think that it's nice where I'm at. I'm looking at the at the forest in the in the Midwest country where this is being recorded from a secret location. Um, not in the underground bunker for today. But anyhow, getting off track. So back to Scorzini. Yeah, about this, you know, receiving the Bravery Award and stuff like that could be true. But also something that we will dive into as we talk about Scorzini is that he would often inflate his own personal uh, accomplishments and achievements. And, you know, we can only trust what Scorzini has to say so much. And there's a big debate uh, between historians. I don't know if big debate, but there is a debate about the small number of uh, auto Scorzini historians about whether or not he was exactly as competent as he liked to make himself out to be. But anyhow, he would then be assigned to the invasion of Russia, where he would find himself in the thick of it, where he would have a job of maintaining tanks and vehicles, putting all that engineering knowledge to good use, or bad use, really. But anyhow, he would then be promoted to first lieutenant, and so he would start to have chronic gallbladder issues, which would result in him being taken back to Germany in order to recover. And once he recovered enough, he would begin to work on vehicle repairs in Berlin. And this would be a time where he would begin to have some doubts about his future in the military. And he did not like being the car repair man. It was not his favorite. Scorzini was bummed. But fortune would soon change for the Nazi. And despite his difficulties, Scorzini still believed in the Fuhrer. He believed in Hitler. He believed in the German cause. And he still believed that Germany could come out victorious in the war, despite the turning of the tides brought after the last four years of Nazi imperial war and conquest. And it wouldn't be long before Skrzyny would say goodbye to the motor pool and he would get an upgrade. And so then the Abwer, uh, that might be the correct, correct pronunciation, but it might not be. But um, anyways, the Abwer of the German intelligence service would begin as a, you know, small in scale and there would be highly trained they would be highly trained saboteurs initially after Poland was invaded by the Nazis and they would dress like civilians and they would go ahead of German forces and they would basically destroy strategic targets and capture bridges and stuff. So that way when the army came after them, you know, thing was all shop was set up. And so as the war progressed, this would transform into its own division and it would begin to take on more serious tasks. And it was decided that these special units would be consisting would consist only of SS men. And so this reorganization would culminate in men being trained in espionage, paramilitary tactics, and they would conduct higher risk missions than, you know, most of the other SS dudes. And so Section S, a new bureau, would be created, and a new commander was needed. And so Scorzini, after recovering from his gallbladder issues and getting tired of the motor pool, he would hear of this new role and he would begin doing all the research that he could do into allied and Axis commando operations, 
covert warfare, military history, what, you know, led to successful battles, what led to failure in battles, things of this nature. And he would particularly research the failures of operations in order to learn how to better refine the art of war. And so one such example of failure that he would research to a pretty significant degree, was the failure of British commandos to capture General Edward Erwin Rummel, sorry, in North Africa. And so, a recommendation from Ernst Kaltenbrunner, the formerly mentioned, you know, head of the Reich Main Security Office, who was in his old dueling buddy, and this recommendation combined with Scorzini's enthusiasm and knowledge of special operations he would acquire would be noticed by the SS and he would secure the new commando position despite his health issues and his lower ranking position and he would become a new SS captain kind of against the odds a little bit you know he's an older guy he's got these gallbladder issues he got sent to the motor pool but now he is a commando leader. And recalling when he accept, accepted the position, he would cite Nietzsche's saying of live dangerously. So, you know, there's the Nazi obsessions with, obsession with Nietzsche um, showing itself. But anyhow, I digress. So Skorzeny would be promoted on April 18th, 1943 with the, you know, Reich security, you know, head um main security office uh section 6s and his unit would be known in english as uh the hunting group um you know and it wasn't deer and things of that nature that they were hunting it was people as i'm sure you guys all know but various men would be recruited from different nazi military units and these men who would be recruited into scorzini's you know commando uh, group battalion whatever you want to call it that he was leading had to demonstrate a knowledge of firearms artillery driving automobiles a foreign language skill uh, operating watercraft and a host of other skills and so i mean it was you know kind of an elite group to say the very least and so the cream of the crop of these guys would be trained to be special agents and all recruits would be trained in covert operations specifically those skills required for being left behind enemy lines and so Scorzini's chain of command would start with the head of the you know section 6s and then it would go on to Kaltenbrenner and then up to Heinrich Himmler himself but despite the fact that you know this chain of command starts with Heinrich Himmler and then works its way down to the Reich main security office and you know Kaltenbrenner and then Scorzini Scorzini would actually receive multiple times throughout his career, and we'll get into some of the specific instances, instructions from Hitler himself. And so many of Scorzini's missions, some of which we will cover, were not only of you know great strategic importance, but also of great political importance to the Reich. And so Scorzini and his men would become proficient in assassination and abduction, and this is going to be a skill that would serve Scorzini through the rest of his life. And it would be this skill that would make him of value to Western intelligence agencies, the Mossad, who knows, maybe even the assassination of JFK. But, 
you guys will just have to wait a little while before we get to that because Scorzini, there's just so much to say about Scorzini, and I'm not sure how long this series will end up running. Could be one of the longer series of this podcast, but anyhow, I mean, it's going to be the kind of thing where you can listen to any individual episode. I mean, you don't have to follow every episode of the series, although if you want to learn a whole bunch about Scorzini, um, I encourage you to do so, but anyhow, I mean, this Knowledge of assassination and abduction of paramilitary tactics, you know, guerrilla warfare, being left behind enemy lines. All that stuff is the kind of stuff that would make him of importance to all the, you know, stay-behind armies that he would be involved with later. Western intelligence agencies, the Mossad, all of that. So, um, and, you know, assassination and abduction is a tool that the Nazis, you know, were not were no by no means stranger to um perhaps the most notable example would take place with the liquidation of some of the rival nazi leaders of the sa and the uh the brown search brown shirts um such as uh ernst rome that rom that was the guy's name but anyhow you know i mean we, we all know that uh the Nazis, I mean, they weren't below doing a Holocaust. It's not, I mean, they weren't above doing a Holocaust. So they certainly weren't above, you know, uh, doing some assassinations and stuff of that, you know, nature. But Skorzeny's team would be involved with the assassinations of anti-Nazi resistance leaders in Nazi-occupied countries, as well as the murder of foreign leaders and battlefield commanders and all of this different stuff. And as we will get into later in this episode, and throughout the series we are embarking on you know this is the skill that would make him useful to powerful people and you know to the Mossad to score to the Kennedy assassination possibly all this stuff but as much as I'd like to start you know just diving into Kennedy right now because um, you know I kind of always like to dive into Kennedy even when I'm at the dinner table with family or with uh, you know at work around the water cooler or whatever it is um it's always a good time to talk about kennedy
watch your own Mama bleed, you like a dog without the teeth It's time to play, you play it slow It's time to die, you play it more I seen gods dying young Welcome to the orchestra to talk about Sporzini without discussing the mission that he is most known for, and that is the rescue of Benito Mussolini. And so this is the thing that would make his name, and that would, you know, initially bring all these different people's eyes onto him, is the much-fabled rescue of Mussolini. So anyhow, let's get into it. We will kind of present the, uh, Maybe the more commonly accepted um, story of these events, but we will get into um, whether or not we can believe it, because a lot of what we know of this mission comes from Scorzini himself, and you know we we'll get into that in just a second. But anyhow, this um, mission will take place in the summer of 1943. The Nazis were being dealt some pretty harsh blows by this point in the war, and on July 10th. 
American and British forces invaded Italy, specifically the island of Sicily. And so German and Italian forces would have to retreat into the mainland. And this was just one of many blows that had been coming their way. But the Nazis would evacuate their forces to the mainland after the island was overtaken by the Allies in a period of 38 days. And this, among many other things, began to create some real opposition to the government of Mussolini. And so, being a fascist authoritarian, he did what fascist authoritarians do. And perhaps this didn't, you know, help with that. But anyhow, a meeting of the fascist Grand Council was brought together. And there would be a vote of no confidence in Mussolini that would be past. And so Mussolini would seek the backing of King Victor Emmanuel III, who was the king of Italy, whose reign would not only see the birth, but also the death of the Italian fascist regimes. But Vicky Boy would ignore the appeal, and he would back the council and appoint a new leader, a Marshal ba Badoglio. I don't know. I'm sorry for my pronunciation skills, everybody. But Mussolini would be arrested and placed in army barracks in Rome before being transferred to the small island of Ponza. So, in other words, he was up shit creek with a, a wet noodle for a paddle. But Hitler and Mussolini were boys, you know. So this position was by... Uh, no means amenable to the failed painter <laughs> Hitler, and it didn't make him feel any better when he realized that Italy was turning its back on Jiminy, Jiminy, Jiminy Christmas, uh, but turning its back on Germany, and that their alliance was in the toilet, and that his homeboy was going to be turned into the allies so hitler was going to break his boy out and this is where operation oak was born and it is also where scorzini enters the story so hitler would order the top special operation officers to be brought before him and scorzini despite being you know a lower ranking officer to many of these people who this was thrown out to would be personally interviewed by hitler and who knows what it is that would impress hitler but he chose him, Scorzini, to lead the mission. Perhaps it was, you know, their a bond that they struck due to their shared Austrian nationality. Perhaps it was something else. But Scorzini would receive his orders from Himmler himself, and the mission was of the topmost secrecy. And there would be, as with many, you know, missions like this, heavy compartmentalization instituted from the bat. You know, a lot of the times people like to say, oh, you know, not in the case of something like Operation Oak, but, you know, with these conspiracies like a JFK or 9-11. Well, how could this ever be done? You know, it would require too many people to know about it. And it's like they've never heard of compartmentalization and they haven't heard of, you know, uh, people only knowing what it is that they need to know in order to accomplish their job. But when everybody's acting, you know, um, and doing their job, that the big picture starts to, starts to unfold. But anyhow, once again, I digress. So only five people would know of the mission's true objective, despite how many people were actually involved with the mission. There would be 50 men who would be recruited into the operation, and they would all dress in Luftwaffe paratrooper uniforms for the purpose of security, and they would immediately make their way to 
Italy. And Scorzini would set up camp at an air base in Rome, and he'd receive intelligence that Mussolini had been taken from Ponza Island to a warship parked in a naval base in La Spezia. And then the intelligence would yet again change that Mussolini was actually being held in Maddalena. And so preliminary reconnaissance would be ran before Scorzini would, you know, fly in a... He would, um, you know... Anyhow, there would be some preliminary reconnaissance before the mission would get underway. So Scorzini would go in a bomber over the site and photograph the locale, and his plane would actually be attacked by the Allies and would crash and result in Scorzini breaking three ribs. But even this would not determine the... Uh, even this would not break the resolve of the determined Nazi commando. And, you know, Mussolini would be moved yet again after this to a resort that once functioned as a ski lodge, and the resort was only accessible by cable car. So Scorzini would then fly over this location, and the plan would be put in place. So the situation that Scorzini and his unit were heading into did not have the odds in their favor, and an assault from the base of the mountain was considered as well as a standard airborne mission, but due to the location and the geography of the site, none of these options were particularly feasible, so they would have to get creative, and Scorzini and his men would have to conduct uh, what has been described by many as a daring assault on the resort with gliders and each glider these small planes you know carried nine soldiers and a pilot and the plan was to rapidly assault the resort and secure the cable cars and then take Mussolini down to the valley below this mountain from one of these cable cars where a plane would be waiting for him and fly him off to safety. But on September 11th, 1943, um, the mission would commence at high noon after a slight delay. They wanted to get started in the morning, but some stuff came up, so they would have to do it at noon. And so the Scorzini papers by retired U.S. Air Force Major Ralph P. Gannis gives us a brief summary of what happens next. So I'm going to go ahead and read from that. As the air mission commenced, two planes were obstructed from takeoff by bomb craters, including the only pilot who knew how to navigate to Grand Sasso. The new formation placed Scorzini as the lead glider, but the tow pilot had no map. Scorzini was able to talk with the pilot by means of cable communication. Thinking quickly, Scorzini used his knife to cut a small window in the glider's bottom and then, recalling the earlier reconnaissance mission, navigated the lead aircraft to Grand Sasso. At 12.45 hours, Major Moore's force reached the lower cable car location and quickly secured the facilities. High over the mountain, Scorzini and the gliders were descending on the main objective. A new problem then revealed itself as gliders approached the ground. Scorzini realized the landing area was strewn with boulders, but shouted for the glider pilot to crash land as close to the hotel as possible. With incredible nerve, the pilot skillfully landed the glider a mere 20 yards from the hotel. Once on the ground, the assault forces jumped into action. Scorzini ran forward, pushing General Saliti in front of him. Scorzini saw Mussolini looking from a second floor window. This was helpful, as Scorzini now knew exactly where to go. He shouted to Mussolini to get inside to avoid being hit by possible gunfire, and then continued to gain entrance to the hotel. The Italian guards were surprised by the presence of General Saliti. He shouted at them not to shoot. 
Scrizzini dashed upstairs, broke into Mussolini's room, and disarmed his two guards, just as two more of his men came in from the window after climbing the wall. Once Mussolini was secured, Scorzini turned to the Italian dictator, saluted him, and declared in German, Deuce, the Fuhrer has sent me. You are free. So, this assault would be over in only 12 minutes, and the guards located at the resort and the cable car station would be disarmed without a single shot being fired. And Captain Heinrich Gerlach would fly the getaway plane with Mussolini and would initially refuse Scorzini aboard because of the uh, because of the distribution of weight on such a small plane. You know, we've got this six foot three, uh, I almost said German, Austrian man trying to climb aboard. But later, when speaking to why he insisted on being aboard the plane, Scorzini would give his reason, and that was that he would rather die than to have to have seen Hitler after a successful rescue mission that resulted in the plane being taken down and Mussolini being killed. So, after all was said and done, Scorzini would receive the most esteemed Nazi valor award as a result, the Iron Cross, and Hitler would call Scorzini to commend his efforts and to promote him to major. And this was something that would not only be recognized by Hitler, but even the allies and military historians and stuff to this day will talk about the Grand Sasso raid and talk about it as an example of a successful mission rescue mission of this sort and so Mussolini would soon after meet with Hitler and a new government would be instituted in northern Italy and this gave the German soldiers a you know a faulty pretext but a pretext nonetheless to remain in Italy and additionally new Italian forces would be uh, brought together to fight the allies and so the mission was also used by Hermann Goring in the Nazi war machine as the basis for a large propaganda campaign. So it was successful on multiple different fronts. It would help boost German morale to some small extent, you know, because we have established that by this point in the war, they have suffered some major blows. And so some historians would even say that the version of Operation Oak that I just relayed is a result of this propaganda campaign by Goring and the Nazi propaganda machine, and that Scorzini did not have nearly as much to do with the success of the mission as some accounts attribute him, with Scorzini's account being one of these accounts, and that it was, you know, truly the Luftwaffe paratroopers, according to some historians, who were responsible for the success of the mission. So this is, you know, part of a larger debate between historians who tackle the issue of Scorzini, as mentioned earlier, as to whether he is this, you know, cunning, evil gen genius, you know, military mastermind strategist, or if he's, you know, more of an opportunistic psycho who is good at selling himself as some sort of strategic mastermind. And so one of these historians who tend to think that Scorzini's role in the rescue of Mussolini is Stuart Smith. He was the author of uh, Otto Scorzini, The Devil's Disciple. And it is also kind of the opinion of H.P. Alborelli and Coup in Dallas as well. And 
H.P. Alborelli would actually cite Stuart Smith. And so I'll just go ahead and read a brief quote. This is from Coup in Dallas by Alborelli Jr. Scorzini biographer Stuart Smith and Otto Scorzini, the Devil's Disciple, plausibly suggest that Major Harold Moores, who headed an elite airborne battalion near Rome at the time and had a tremendous amount of experience in conducting airborne assaults, was the actual author of the operation at Italy's Grand Sasso Mountain that liberated Mussolini. Military historian Lieutenant Colonel Florian Burbick would comment that actually Scorzini pretty much went along for the ride as a passenger. Still, Scorzini had been responsible for a great deal of the intelligence collection that pointed the German paratroopers to Mussolini's location, and decisions he made on the ground played a large part in the success of the operation, which had been formally handed to Scorzini by Adolf Hitler. Admiral William McRaven, arguably the world's foremost authority on military special operations, concluded, Whether Scorzini was a strap hanger or the mastermind of the operation is inconsequential. Ultimately, success resulted from Scorzini's action at Grand Sasso and not from Moore's. So anyways, there's just a little bit into the debate about the Grand Sasso raid, but this is something that will kind of make an appearance in different accounts of Scorzini. Um, the Scorzini papers, one of the sources which I'm going to be heavily drawing from in this series, um, is kind of, you know, I don't know if Gannis is necessarily of the opinion that Scorzini is this kind of, you know, uh, brilliant evil mastermind, um, but that is kind of how the Scorzini papers comes across. But something I will say about Gannis is that he does have um, some sources that other people don't. I mean, he has Scorzini's private papers, which he would win at auction, and that would lead him to write the book. And he was actually really close with Alborelli Jr. due to this research, so they would kind of correspond. But as I read Coup in Dallas, and, uh, you know, I haven't read it in full, but as I look at what Stuart Smith has to say, those two seem to kind of be more of the opinion that, uh, you know, and, and perhaps I'm wrong, I don't want to put anything in anyone's mouth, but especially Stuart Smith, that Scorzini is kind of this guy who has a knack for talking himself up, and that he maybe isn't every bit as competent as he portrays himself. And this is some talk that has surrounded Scorzini for a while now, but one of Scorzini's military contemporaries would describe him as intelligent, but not intellectual. And he, as we will get into later, was, you know, often reliant upon people close to him for what Alborelli described as detailed operational planning. He was, in other words, the big ideas guy. But regardless of whether or not Scorzini is responsible for the mission's success, Operation Oak would cement his importance in the Nazi hierarchy and in the annals of military history as well. So it's something that can't really be overlooked when it comes to Scorzini, regardless of the actual truth as to what exactly happened. It's almost more important to know what happened afterwards as a result of his role in the Grand Sasso uh, rescue mission of Mussolini. But anyhow, Scorzini and his men would become experts in abduction and assassination missions, something that the Office of Strategic Services and the Special Operations Executive on the Allied side wasn't unfamiliar with itself. And as we will get into later, these uh, American and British intelligence agencies had a need for people 
or not a need. They had a want for people like Scorzini, and they would go to some pretty dark places, such as Scorzini himself, to get people who had these skills that they were looking for. But while many of these missions did come to fruition, some did not. And, you know, so one of these Scorzini missions that, you know, we'll have to talk about is Operation Long Jump. And so FDR, Stalin, and Churchill were scheduled to meet at a leaders' conference in Tehran. And while it is a subject of debate as to how far the planning for this mission went, you know, even if it was an officially on-the-books mission or whatever, uh, according to the author of the Scorzini papers, Ralph Gannis, he would say that there is, you know, enough evidence to suggest that Scorzini had some hand in this operation, and the operation may have been called off after Russian intelligence passed word along to the Allies about the Nazi plan, but some theorize that the Russians may have simply been trying to get Roosevelt to stay in a bugged room at the Soviet embassy, and that's why they, you know, leaked about this, you know, plan for the, you know, either the assassination or the abductions of Stalin, FDR, and Churchill, but Another assassination plan that never came to fruition was the plan for Skorzeny's unit to kill the Yugoslavian communist leader, Tito. And so, let's talk about another more successful operation, you know. So we have these operations that Skorzeny, you know, most likely was designed to be a part of, but they ended up not coming to fruition. Let's talk about one that did the funnily enough named Operation Mickey Mouse. And so Skorzeny would be given another difficult mission by, once again, Hitler himself. So as we see, you know, even though he has above him the, you know, Reich main security office and, you know, uh, uh, Himmler and stuff like this, he is often receiving directions from Hitler himself. So he would be given this mission by Hitler at a time when several of the Nazi allies had fallen. And the allies, uh, you know, the Americans and the British, were on the border of Germany after liberating France. So the only remaining ally of the Nazis was Hungary. And the situation was not looking good because Hungary, along with a million German troops, were fighting the Soviets and the Carpathians. And their regent admiral, Miklos Herthy, was secretly negotiating surrender to the Red Army. So, Skorzeny was tasked by Hitler with figuring out a way to end these negotiations. And if this meant the removal of Miklos, you know, that option was on the table. So, Skorzeny would learn that the regent admiral was being influenced by his son, this kind of playboy figure, Miklos Jr., and that he was planning to meet with the Soviets in Budapest. And so, he planned to abduct the younger Miklos in order to force his father to tow the Nazi line. So, so Skorzeny is going to go, you know, steal this, this playboy, Miklos Jr., and the reason that operation was named Mickey Mouse was because of, you know, the similarities between the names Miklos and, and Mickey. So, you know, Operation Mickey Mouse is the name of this operation. And they're going to steal little playboy Mickey Mouse Jr. So after the younger Miklos was abducted and flown back to Germany, his father still did not tow the Nazi line. So they would get little Mickey but 
Big Mickey did not seem to really give that much of a shit in the context of what was going on. And so a armistice would be negotiated with the Soviets. And when, you know, when this failed to work, Skorzeny would lead a convoy of German troops and tanks to the palace of the older Mikolos and place Horthy into custody. And he would once again be rewarded by Hitler for his efforts and be given the rank of lieutenant colonel and be told of a new mission that was to take place in the Belgian Ardennes forest that would supposedly help secure a German victory. So let's take a look at what happens next, and that is the last large German offensive on the Western Front in World War II, known as the Ardennes Offensive, or as it is more often referred to these days as the Battle of the Bulge. Um, which, you know, the Battle of the Bulge, that could sound like some sort of, like, uh, Calvin Klein underwear, uh, competition, you know, where you have Marky Mark show his bulge, and then you have some other handsome boy show his bulge, and they compete over it, but that was not what it was. It was the last large German offensive of World War II on the Western Front, but Anyhow, I need to quit being a comedian and get back to talking about the subject at ham. And so at dawn on a mid-December day in 1944, the Germans would have two panzer armies placed against a small American-held sector of the Ardennes Forest in Belgium and Luxembourg. And initially the Americans were caught with their pants down while the Germans advanced to the west, but many of the uh, German generals believed this attack to be a waste of Germany's scarce resources at the time. There was almost uh, half a million men being assembled by the Germans, over a thousand tanks and destroyers and, you know, other weaponry and artillery being spent in the battle. However, the Americans would be dealt a considerable blow with more American forces dying in the Battle of the Bulge than in any other battle of World War II with you know, almost 89,000 casualties and almost 19,000 killed. So the battle would actually be the third deadliest campaign in American military history. And so once again, we will refer to the Skorzeny papers, where Ralph Gannis writes, Skorzeny had first heard about the Ardennes Offensive at Hitler's headquarters, where he was being decorated for a successful special operation in Hungary that averted a major crisis on the Eastern Front. After rewarding him the German cross in gold, Hitler took Skorzeny aside, walking over to a huge war map and informed him of the planned Ardennes offensive. Skorzeny listened intensely to the Fuhrer, knowing that he was about to receive new orders, and then it came. One of the most critical tasks of the offensive will be assigned to you and the units under your command. Your units will seize one or more of the bridges across the Meuse River, between Liege and Namur, in advance of our forces. They will execute this task while wearing British and American uniform. Smaller units, disguised in American uniforms, will infiltrate enemy lines in order to issue false orders, disrupt communication, and spread confusion. Skorzeny was stunned by the order. His unit was currently involved in dozens of other complex operations. But before the commando chief could address his concerns, Hitler dismissed him. I know you will do your best, Skorzeny, but now comes the most important part. This matter is top secret. 
So now let's get into Skorzeny's role in the bloodiest Nazi attack against the Allies in all of World War II, and his role was by no means a small role. And so one of the key objectives of the offensive was to capture, you know, key bridges over the River Meuse, as, you know, it said in that quotation that I just read from, in order to clear a way for armored units to move west. Now, here is where we're going to be coming upon something that is rather interesting. If one believes Gorzini's account of things, something that I would personally not make a habit of, this is all rumor, but there is a reason to believe that this could be true, and that is that one of the objectives, an objective that most likely would have been assigned to Skorzeny, was the capture and possibly even the assassination of General Eisenhower, you know, the guy who'd go on to be president of the United States not too long afterwards. And so regardless of whether this is a rumor, as Skorzeny states, or an actual objective of the mission, word began to spread of this, and some of Skorzeny's men early in the fighting would be captured, and when interrogated by American counterintelligence officers, they would say that Skorzeny was their commander, and that they had attended to reach Allied headquarters in Paris to assassinate the Allied Supreme Commander. Obviously, word of this would make its way back to headquarters, and Eisenhower would be confined to his office, and his headquarters would be turned into what was, you know, described at the time as a fortress. It would be guarded by tanks, with more men being added on to security, and all kinds of other heightened security measures being taken in order to ensure the safety of Eisenhower. So, perhaps Skorzeny is being truthful when he says that there was no plan to capture or kill Eisenhower, because none of Skorzeny's men were caught in France, and it is possible that this alleged plan could have been planted as a false story in order to have the Americans invest their time and effort into defending against a phantom threat and not you know, paying attention to more real threats that were based in reality and so talking about this possibility and um so talking about this possibly intended release of disinformation and psychological warfare scorzini would say it was as if a small rock had been thrown into the calm water of a pond spreading concentric waves in all directions and he would also say about the alleged plot against eisenhower that it is not true that I tried to kill General Eisenhower. It is not true that I ever attempted to kidnap, maim, or in any way inconvenience America's favorite son. And he would go on to add, Naturally, I should have done so if I received the order, but the order did not come. And so, once again, this is kind of an interesting thing, you know. There's the talk about whether Scorzini's role was inflated in the Grand Sasso rescue, or, you know, whether or not he, or there was actually a plan by Skorzeny and his men to capture or kill Eisenhower. And something that I think that is interesting about both of these events is that they both could have a certain kind of propaganda aspect to them. And maybe the inflation of, you know, Skorzeny's role in the Grand Sasso raid, aside from being in order to inflate his own ego and to get all the awards and whatnot could have been serving a propaganda purpose you know in order to kind of give the germans a boost in self-esteem at a time when the war was starting to look like it wasn't going their way and what have you or with the case of you know this alleged plan to 
capture or kill Eisenhower, perhaps that this was, you know, some sort of propaganda in order to get the Americans to pay attention to this phantom threat. So I think it's both, it's interesting that, you know, both these things that are kind of debated between different historians could have had a certain propaganda element to them. But anyhow, let's go ahead and get back to Scorzini. So another thing that Scorzini would take part in is what were known as werewolf operations that were devised by Heinrich Himmler, which were created to put up resistance to the Allies from behind enemy lines. And they would consist of, you know, assassinations, arson, uh, snipers, all different types of sabotage. Um, so while Scorzini had many other plates spinning at this point in time, he would help to transform to train these werewolf units in addition to providing logistical support for the saboteurs. So the assassination of the Nazi, Nazi official who was believed to have been collaborating with the Allies, Franz Oppenhoff, which was named Operation Carnival, was one of these werewolf missions in which Skorzeny took part in. And so Goebbels would be the one to pass the orders in regards to Operation Carnival down to Skorzeny and a team of four SS men and two members of the Hitler Youth would be dropped by parachute into a forested area, area behind enemy lines not far from the location of Oppenhoff and they would pose as German pilots who were trying to get back to friendly lines and they would shoot Oppenhoff in the head after shouting, Hal Hitler. So, uh, you know, there's just another absolutely lovely thing, obviously being facetious, that Skorzeny would take part in, is these werewolf operations. And so Skorzeny would also organize a group during the Nazi days, titled Organization Technique, which would create right-wing resistance in France in an effort to establish a fascist alliance in the country. And this is something to take note of because it is most likely during this time that he would begin to forge many of the connections to people, you know, these, these fascist networks in France that will play a result in later things, which he would become involved in some Operation Gladio, stay behind network type stuff, which we will get into in this series. We'll get into it some in just the next episode in our series on Scorzini. So stay tuned for that. It's very interesting stuff. But anyways, you know, Scorzini would try to create this fascist alliance in France. And much of this would be done through the La Cagoule, or the French fascist terrorist group that was banked by the wealthy, such as the founder of L'Oreal Cosmetic Company, Eugene Delancle. And so, um, hopefully I'm pronouncing Cagoule uh, correct. I'm, you know, once again, I don't speak French. I'll have to ask my girlfriend about the proper French pronunciation of that, but I believe that it translates to the hooded ones, if you want to do more research into them, because they are interesting, some bad hombres, but interesting, um, and it is C-A-G-O-U-L-E, and so the former Cagoule serving with Scorzini would establish contact with Cagoule, who were in the French army and in the French resistance, and as we will see later in our series, you know, many of the people Scorzini would foster relationships through the Kagul would end up playing a role in Skorzeny's later operations 
after the Nazi years. And this attempt by Skorzeny and the Nazis to establish a fascist anti-communist alliance by bringing together former Kagul would end up in Skorzeny being uh, beginning his relationship, you know, with French intelligence. And after the Allied invasion of France, 150 to 200 men would be trained as agents in southwest Germany before being sent back to fight the Allies in France. And so, you know, this operation technique was created by the leader of Malice, the fascist Vicky French paramilitary, Joseph Darnand, and Jean's Degens would command the OT, and Skorzeny, along with former Kugul, Jean Fillol, who will come back up later in our series once again, would act as a liaison between the French and the Germans. So remember Jean Fillol, um, but anyhow, Skorzeny's special forces, you know, would train the OT in sabotage and secret service camps, in secret service camps. And later we will get into some of the greater specifics regarding the Kagul, the OT, and Skorzeny. Given time, we can see how this might have reverberations that literally go as far as Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas. If you know what I'm talking about, and I think you do. So... There is a lot of ground to cover before we get into that, but we'll just continue to go ahead and cover that ground. So for the moment, let's conclude Skorzeny's Nazi years. And Skorzeny's last mission for the Nazis would be when he was sent to Bavaria in what is known as the Alpine Fortress, which was Germany's national redoubt. And what a national redoubt is, it's an area for an army to retreat to retreat to after the loss of a main battle. And so when Skorzeny arrived to this location, there were no troops there to put up one last good fight, but Skorzeny had never been one to give up. You could say a lot of negative things about him, but he was always persistent in pursuing these negative things, which I'm not exactly sure is a positive, but so, you know, he would contact other German commanders and create the SKA, which would be a unit of around 300 men. And Skorzeny intended to use this uh, force in guerrilla warfare against the Russians who were coming in from the east, you know, a one last hurrah kind of a thing. But on April 30th, the news would come out that Hitler had died, although what came over the radio wasn't that he had committed suicide, but rather that he had died honorably in the fight against the Soviets or some bullshit. And so Skorzeny still was not ready to give up, but instead of surrendering at the moment, opted to fight so long as there was, you know, a legitimate chain of command in place. And so Grand Admiral Karl Donitz would take Hitler's place and would stall things in order to afford German troops the ability to retreat from the Soviets and head west in order to surrender to the Allies. And so eventually the stalling could go on no longer and Donitz would order all German troops to surrender on May 8th. And then Skorzeny and his staff would gather in a cabin in Dockstein and consider their options. And, you know, Skorzeny would weigh all the different options that one weighs in that type of situation, you know, options is, you know, like suicide or uh, trying to flee to a neutral company, uh, country, sorry, and, you know, surrendering along with his fellow Nazi soldiers. And he would decide on the latter. He was going to surrender with some of his fellow Nazi soldiers. 
And given that Skorzeny was an SS officer, he was one of the men who was highly sought after for arrest. There were actually flyers going around with Skorzeny's face on it with the word assassin being posted. And he would, with some of the boys, enjoy a few more days of freedom after the announcement for all access to surrender and he would go and do just that he would surrender and Skorzeny along with some of his men fully armed would make their way to the nearest Americans and make it known they were seeking to surrender and the sergeant did not recognize Skorzeny and he would set up a jeep and drive to take them into Salzburg where the division's headquarters were located to surrender and shortly after arriving at Salzburg, war correspondents and MPs, some of them armed with machine guns, would disarm the bunch and have their arms secured behind their backs, and the questioning would begin. And he would, you know, be asked about the attempt on Eisenhower's life, which he denied of any plan existing, saying that if he had been given such orders, he would have attempted to carry them out, and that there would be no doubt as to what he was trying to do. And... On May 21st of 1945, Skorzeny would be transferred to Augsburg, where he would be interrogated for six hours by Eisenhower's counterintelligence chief, and Skorzeny's interrogator would try to get him to admit to saving Hitler or and you know escorting him out of Berlin and admitting that he was alive. And in typical Skorzeny fashion, he would say that he if it is if he had escorted Hitler, he would still be at his side. And so a week after Skorzeny's arrest, it would be reported that there had never been an attempt to assassinate Eisenhower, despite all the reporting on the matter during the Battle of the Bulge and immediately after. So that's kind of interesting that all the reporting on the issue, you know, suddenly, you know, took on uh, a whole new uh, tone after Skorzeny's arrest, which can, you know, make you scratch your head just a little bit. But Skorzeny would be transferred to a, multi a multitude of times and be interrogated much more. And his final charges placed on him weren't war crimes, which would have probably been, you know, more accurate, but instead were violent violations of the law of war and his trial was set for 1947 but as you all already know this is not the last that the world would hear of Skorzeny he had more work to do so some of that work would be for American intelligence the Mossad you know uh, the French these you know fascist you know gladio type networks you know you name it and he would you know uh he would attend, uh, you know, meetings with the World Anti-Communist League. Sorry, I had like a, a brain failure for a second. Um, you know, he would attend meetings with the World Anti-Communist League, which we did, discussed in a previous episode, and we're going to discuss more here in the short future. But he may have even, as we will cover, you know, in greater detail later in the series, have had something to do with the JFK assassination. So Skorzeny's days of assassination, sabotage, and special operations were by no means over. In fact, they may have just begun and that is where we are going to conclude today's episode so if you enjoyed today's episode i would highly encourage you to leave a review on uh you know spotify or apple Podcasts if you use one of those apps or if whatever you know 
platform you're using to stream this podcast, if they have a review option, I encourage you to do that. I would also encourage you, if you have a friend or a family member or an acquaintance who you think would be interested in the subject matter of today's episode or one of my other episodes, go ahead, send that over to them, share the podcast far and wide. Let's get it some more listeners. That is always good, and I always appreciate new listeners. And speaking about how much I appreciate all you listeners, I always love hearing from you guys. I get messages every week, and it always makes me happy to get to hear from you guys. So if you want to say something positive, negative, constructive criticism, uh, you know, compliments, uh, if you have something you want me to look into or maybe do a future podcast on, if you have information about Scorzini that you think that maybe I'd want to know um, and you know for this series or any of that good stuff, I am always interested to hear from you guys. Good, bad, in between. Always excited to hear from you guys. But anyways, that's going to be it for today's episode. I am Luke Marshall. This is the Thing Observed Things Observed podcast. And yeah, this has been a fun one, and I think we're going to continue to have some more fun looking into the wild, wacky, evil, Nazi, CIA, Gladio world of Scorzini. So stick around. There's going to be some more good stuff coming soon about Scorzini and about other things. So stick around. Love you all, and I will talk to you all soon.